Welcome. This is Alexia Hudson Ward, Editor-in-Chief of Toward Inclusive Excellence, or TAI for short, a multimedia blog hosted by Choice, the publishing unit of the Association of College and Research Libraries, a division of the American Library Association. We explore equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility issues that affect the higher education community. Among the goals of this channel is the development of a pool of knowledge and actionable resources for information professionals, undergraduates, faculty of all disciplines, campus staff, and administrators at every level seeking to understand racism and discrimination from new perspectives and to promote social justice on their campuses and within their communities. We are excited to welcome you to our podcast series that borrows its name from the Higher Education Academic Calendar. Therefore, you are listening to Ty's Spring Semester. Our first Spring Semester podcast features an enlightening interview with Deborah Caldwell Stone, Director of the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom and the Executive Director of the Freedom to Read Foundation. In her roles, Deborah serves as Principal Representative of the American Library Association to organizations that support intellectual freedom and open access to information and privacy. She is also the Secretariat for the Leroy C. Merritt Humanitarian Fund, which provides support to library workers who are, in the trustees' opinions, denied employment rights or discriminated against on the basis of gender, sexual orientation, race, color, creed, religion, age, disability, or place of national origin, or denied employment rights because of defense of intellectual freedom. The Freedom to Read Foundation is a nonprofit legal and educational organization founded in 1969 to promote and protect the freedom of speech and the freedom of the press, to protect the public's right of access to information and materials stored in the nation's libraries, to safeguard libraries' rights to disseminate all materials contained in their collections, and support libraries, librarians, and library workers in their defense of First Amendment rights by supplying them with legal counsel or the means to secure it. Deborah joined the American Library Association two decades ago, assuming the directorship of the Office of Intellectual Freedom in 2019. She earned a Bachelor of Arts in Mass Media Communication from the Cleveland State University and is an honors graduate of the Chicago Kent College of Law at the Illinois Institute of Technology, where she holds a Juris Doctorate. In our dialogue, Deborah discusses the shocking increase in book banning and challenges in America over the past two years, drawing attention to highly organized groups attempting to strip books from school libraries and syllabi that reflect the lived experiences of marginalized communities. There are ongoing challenges against books about LGBTQIA persons. In addition, these organized groups supported by elected officials have advanced more targeted attacks 
against Black authors who write about Black lived experiences, falsely labeling these books as perpetuating critical race theory. Yet, people are fighting back against these patently false assertions and urging others to join anti-censorship efforts. The Office of Intellectual Freedom and the Freedom to Read Foundation are partnering with or encouraging involvement with several organizations, such as PEN America, the National Coalition Against Censorship, the ACLU, and Red Wine and Blue, a national organization of mothers who are pushing back against book bans and amplifying the need for diversity-centered education. While the uptick in book challenges and banning is daunting, Deborah also provides us with a message of hope in seeing a growing youth movement that is clear that they will not be denied their freedom to read. Now to our conversation with Deborah Caldwell Stone. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me, Alexia. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're just going to dive right in. And my first question to you is, uh, would you describe the current landscape of what's happening with book banning and book challenges in the United States? And current is defined as, I would say, maybe the past year to year and a half, Mm. maybe even two years, like really since the pandemic? Well, if we go all the way back to the beginning of the pandemic, we were in a time when uh, most challenges to books and schools and libraries dealt with uh, LGBTQIA issues, uh, the concerns, experiences of LGBTQIA persons. Uh, best example, of course, is the most challenged book for the last three years, which is the book now titled Melissa. Um, it was formerly titled George by Alex Gino, um, mm-hmm. which was a middle grade book uh, about the adventures and experiences of a transgender child. You know, nothing you know, there was no sex in it or anything. It was perfectly appropriate, but it was being challenged simply because it portrayed a transgender character. And if you look at our more cha- uh, our most challenged book lists for the last three years, you'll see that they were almost all LGBTQIA books. Mm, we saw mm-hmm. a shift immediately after the death, the murder of George Floyd. And we, with the rising awareness of racism, we started to see a pushback and we saw uh, challenges to books dealing with police violence toward black persons and dealing with racism so that uh, we saw uh, a number of books dealing with racism rise to the top of our most challenged list, um, mm-hmm. uh, stamped by Dr. Kendi and Jason Reynolds. And uh, Jason Reynolds and Brendan Kearley's book, uh, All American Boys, became number two and number three on our most challenged list. Starting in the spring uh, of 2021, we started to observe activities by organized groups uh, that were going to school board meetings in particular, but also public library board meetings, complaining about the content of books that dealt with gender and sexual identity, but also 
books that they believed related to what's been called critical race theory, but has mm. actually amounted mm -hmm. to an attack on books dealing with racism and, and the experiences of black persons in the United States. Um, and, and that's really become a tsunami of challenges. These organizations have created websites with lists of bad books uh, that are shared with local chapters. The chapters themselves build lists of books that they object to. They're showing up at board meetings uh, and demanding the removal of these books. And mm -hmm. so we've mm -hmm. gotten a volume of challenges we've never seen in the time that I've worked here at ALA, and that's two decades now. Um, wow. Yeah, we saw uh, 330 challenges between September 1st and November 30th. We have a rough count for December of 2021 of another 146 challenges. Um, mm. We think that will be well north of 700 challenges for 2021. And if wow. you want a number to compare that to, in 2019, the last year uh, that we had schools and libraries open without the pandemic, we received a total of 377 challenges for the entire year. And wow. you have to and, and understand, too, that when I talk about a challenge, we talk about a unique case, but behind mm -hmm. each case could be anywhere from four to 15 book titles. So that the number of titles challenge is much higher than the actual, you know, the recorded cases. So it really is, we, I've called it unprecedented in the past. And I really mean it. We've never seen this wave of censorship uh, in all the time I've worked at the American Library Association. Wow. Wow, that is absolutely incredible um, to really just spend a moment thinking about so many of the data points that you shared, Deborah, but most specifically that we're basically looking at a more than 50% increase mm -hmm. since 2019 is just absolutely remarkable. It's remarkable. It, you know, it really does reflect a well-coordinated effort um, by a number of groups to impose their agendas on the schools and libraries of our country. Mm -hmm. And um, we're tracking the efforts of some of these groups, uh, Moms for Liberty, Parents Defending Education, No Left Turn in Education. Um, and, you know, they offer different reasons for why they're challenging books. They say that they're not discriminatory, but it just happens that all the books that they're challenging for sex deal with gender and sexual identity. And it just mm -hmm. happens that all the books that they claim are CRT are works dealing with the lived experiences of black persons in the United States. Um, you know, I think we've all heard the anecdote uh, about the one Moms for Liberty group in Tennessee that complained about a picture book biography of Ruby Bridges, uh, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. woman who integrated the schools in Little Rock, Arkansas, so many years ago, um, as being inappropriate for six and seven-year-olds to read. Uh, it, it's just stunning to see the level of censorship uh, that we're seeing going on in the country today. It is stunning, Deborah. And for um, the sake of our Toward Inclusive Excellence audience, could you help us to understand the difference um, legally or just in action by your office, the difference between a book banning versus a book being challenged? Um, we use a very 
strict definition of a book ban, which is when uh, an, uh, a government body, which is a school board or a library board, or their agent takes an action to remove a book from the collection of the library or remove a book from the classroom, uh, thereby preventing access to that work. That's a book ban. A book challenge is when a group or an individual uh, asks that body to remove the book from the collection or from the classroom. So anyone can challenge a book. And in fact, we argue that they have the right to do that. You know, one of the foundations of intellectual freedom in the United States is the First Amendment, which grants the right to petition the government. Um, it what stands behind our right to take to the streets, to complain, to write letters, whatever. So we say, sure, everybody has a right to raise a concern about materials in the library or in the classroom. Um, mm -hmm. We but we do say as well that there has to be due process, that there needs to be a procedure that ensures transparency, that looks at the work as a whole, that uh, makes sure that the work isn't removed in an unconstitutional fashion or simply because somebody doesn't like the ideas in the book. And so uh, that lies behind our recommendation for a reconsideration policy. Uh, when books are removed for unconstitutional re reasons, courts have intervened and ordered books back on the shelf and supported the rights of individual library users, both for uh, public libraries and school libraries in the past. So um, there's a firm foundation for that. But that's the difference. And I, I'm sorry, uh, a little more detail than you probably wanted, but that's the difference between a ban and a challenge. No, that's absolutely excellent detail. Um, thank you so much, because I think that sometimes in the internet chatter and in the social media chatter, Deborah, like the two, not wrongfully so, you know, people mm -hmm. are trying to do everything that they can to advocate um, as much as they can. Uh, but I think sometimes the two get blended. And so having that detail um, around what constitutes a challenge versus the actual action of banning a book, I think will be remarkably helpful. Um, for many of our listeners. So thank you so much. You also, you're touching on so many fabulous points. I wish I had like hours to talk to you. Um, but there's something that you said that is really key. And, and I've also taken notice to the fact that this has also been covered in a lot of our um, publications within the United States, like USA Today and Fox, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post is that this iteration of book challenges and book bannings are very different, that they are organized and orchestrated and that they seem to be, you know, driven by a very specific agenda as outlined by several groups, some of which you named um, earlier in our conversation. But I want to, I want to hear you talk a little more about this idea that some people are putting forth that parents have the right you know, to question and to challenge and in some aspects even demand that certain materials that they deem as harmful for their children, you know, needs to be removed from libraries, needs to be removed from uh, course packs and from teacher syllabi. And you, you touched on this point around transparency and due process. Can you explain that a little more for the Toward Inclusive Excellence listeners around what that process should look like to ensure transparency? 
Well, ideally, every school board, every library board should have written policy uh, addressing the situation when somebody raises a concern about uh, materials in the library's collection um, used in the classroom so that um, when that usually should require a formal written complaint um, identifying the problematic uh, and I should be careful about my language but identifying the book and the reasons the individual is objecting to the book or believes it should be removed. Uh, sometimes it fall short of an actual ban, they'll suggest that it be moved to uh, the high school if it's a school situation. They'll suggest that it uh, be moved to a parenting collection if it's in the public library. So sometimes the demands fall short of actual removal, but they amount to censorship as well, in which case that complaint should go to uh, a review committee, which we recommend be comprised of a number of individuals and that that committee meet and measure the materials versus uh, against a written selection or collection development policy that outlines mm -hmm. the criteria for building the collection, which I'm sure our, your listeners will be at least familiar with, um, and, and make a determination if the work was acquired according to policy. And if it was meets the criteria of the policy, it was acquired according to policy, and it meets the information needs of the user, it's our contention that the work should remain in the collection or available to students in the school and that this committee should meet and, and operate in public, that there should be notice about their meetings, that their report should be made to the relevant board at an open board meeting so everyone is aware that the process is taking place. Um, everyone in the community has an opportunity to weigh in uh, so that it's just not a single voice or a few voices making decisions for the entire community. And that we have this objective criteria um, that is um, more well, looking more towards selection rather than censorship. Why is this book in the collection? Why does it deserve to be in the collection? Why should it be available in the community or to the school rather than saying what's bad about this book? Um, when you evaluate the work as a whole, you you know you, more often than not the decision is to retain the book. The example I'd like to use is that you know if you read three paragraphs from a particular work of literature, uh, you you think you might be reading the worst kind of uh, adult pornography, and you pull back and you yes. have Toni Morrison's <laughs> Beloved. You know, um, which, you know, has been in the headlines as well. But, you know, we we have this what we're seeing in the censorship effort right now is the effort to convict uh, works of literature, um, uh, works of graphic novels, other works like that uh, on the basis of a single panel or a few paragraphs or the use of a few epithets in the book. Uh, profanity. You can look at what happened to the, you know, in Tennessee where they removed mouse. At least they, the ostensible reason was is that uh, for that the work used profanity and that there was a drawing of a, a nude female mouse because you know that uh, mouse uses uh, the the uh, mouse mice and cat as stand-ins uh, for right. uh, in that in that graphic novel. But you know. There's always a concern that sometimes these surface reasons hide uh, a deeper prejudice against the ideas in the book. 
and if not, you know, reflects uh, a tragic emphasis on minutiae against the the work as a whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much, Deborah. You know, I um, often self describe as a governance walk. Like I believe in a policy um, oh, yeah, because I think that it is so critical to have as transparent of practices as possible. And I think that particularly for some parents and some educators who are feeling kind of these onslaught of attacks that you and your office are aware of, but they may not necessarily be getting um, high visibility media coverage. You have really outlined a fabulous process through which a policy can emerge and or be managed, you know, so that to your really good point, you know, selection, not censorship, is really part of the criteria of the choice points and decisions that are made around inclusion of products um, within or or inclusion of of materials within a curriculum or within a library. Absolutely. And, you know, it's important to note that this policy should be complemented by policies that allow an individual parent to opt their student out of an assignment or make different choices for themselves or their their children, you know. Yes. Um, but it shouldn't mean, you know, I, I've said this so many times, it's become almost rope, but, you know, that you that a parent might make different choices for themselves or their children. It doesn't mean they get to make choices for the entire community. And, and that's the real tragedy here is that these very loud voices are saying, well, we're protecting children. Well, they're, they're protecting their own children. But, you know, it disregards other families, other children who have different needs, who may absolutely need access to the diverse materials that are being targeted by these censorship attempts. Yes, that is such an important note to state, too, Deborah, is that it's fine, right, if you have particular beliefs, um, whether they, you know, align with a particular political philosophy or a socioeconomic philosophy or religious philosophy, you absolutely, as a parent, um, have the right to determine what your child engages in in the context of their educational experience. But you can't make that decision for my kid, you know, or my grandkid. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't make that decision uh, for other people's children. And that's where, to me, like, this is just so remarkable is this kind of this blanket broad brush statement or painted in broad strokes to use kind of all of those analogies of these different attacks on these materials as if the people that are against them are doing it for the common good. And that just does not seem to be the case at all. No, it's, uh, you know, the theme I perceive in all of this is upholding a very narrow status quo that may never have existed in the yes. first place, in the face of uh, a society that's increasingly multicultural and diverse. And, you know, of course, you know, our libraries and our classrooms should reflect that diversity that uh, and be culturally competent. But we're seeing real resistance to that in these challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that it's interesting, Deborah, that you raise that there is a parallel between the heightened attention and awareness around racism and anti-racism practices accordingly, and then certain materials being banned. And I feel like that story is just starting to really come to 
the light of the majority of people who are interested in constitutional protections and everything else. But it is it is so that we're seeing just so much attack on diverse authors materials. And so there's always been these kind of what I would describe as beefs. You know, there's always been this beef around some Mm -hmm. of Toni Morrison's materials, some of Alice Walker's materials. But now that list has grown to sometimes even include children's books by diverse Mm -hmm. authors, to my understanding as well. Is that correct? Uh, Absolutely. Um, We can look at the challenge brought to the biography of Ruby Bridges intended for first and second graders as one example. But probably for me, the most telling anecdote, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Jerry Craft's books for uh, you know, middle school readers. Um, yes. And yes. De- detailing his protagonist's adventures as the first or only African-American attending uh, a white private school. And, you know, the books are lovely. They, they, there's no, you know, it's, it's just kids being kids and learning to navigate a new world and things like that. But uh, he was scheduled to give uh, author's presentation in Katy, the Katy, Texas school district to the fourth and fifth graders. And a single mother saw that a black author was presenting a book about a black kid and, and called up the school board and complained that they were promoting critical race theory. And wow. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And so, wow. And so, um, and, and the set, you know, and of course, Jerry Kraft is not, you know, that's not his oeuvre at all. You know, he's writing for kids, about kids, you know. And so uh, at any rate, her complaint was sufficient to cause the school board to cancel the author's visit and to remove the book from the library. Now, when it became public that this was happening, there was an enormous outcry. We were pleased to be able to assist Jerry and having a platform to talk directly to the students through our blog. Um, and eventually uh, other parents spoke up and and his visit was rescheduled and the book was put back in the library. But, you know, we're seeing that kind of knee-jerk reaction all the time to works dealing with racism or the experiences of Black persons that deal with the history uh, of slavery and racism in the United States. And, you know, we're, it's all in part tied to this campaign around what's called critical race theory. A number of advocate groups have created a real moral panic based on almost nothing at all. And as a result, we're seeing individuals go to school boards demanding the removal of these books. And we're even seeing elected officials jump on the bandwagon. There's at least eight states that have passed some kind of legislation banning the teaching or consideration of ideas around racism, sexism, uh, discrimination against immigrants and others on the, uh, on the basis that it might make white people feel bad, primarily mm-hmm. is the argument. Uh, we were actually tracking legislation that would ban any use uh, or purchase of the 1619 Project in school libraries and even some public libraries because laws are being written so expansively that they apply to any government agency, which would include public library boards. Um, right. And right. You know, we, we are working with state chapters um, and other uh, groups to resist these laws uh, and, and this legislation. But it's really frightening to observe this pushback. 
It really is. And there is this uh, absolute connection between, I remember, attacks on the drag queen story hours, the attacks that you raised around LGBTQ materials, now this commandeering of legal theory mm-hmm. and suggesting that the commandeering of legal theory now represents all things diversity and most specifically um, the lived experience of, of African-Americans and, and people of African descent in this nation. And now the explosion that we're seeing um, in terms of many people throughout states at every level elected and appointed diving into this this negative discourse and I do I find it frustrating I find it shocking and I find it um, it, it makes me deeply concerned that we're swinging these individuals seem to be swinging at what I refer to as the base of the oak tree of democracy in some of these actions absolutely you know that's from uh, as someone who trained as an attorney, that's what's deeply frightening to me is this idea that censorship is the tool to use to address these concerns raised by these parents that, you know, we have to suppress ideas that we have to deny the right to think about topics in different ways, that there is only one status, you know, one orthodoxy that we must all pledge allegiance to. And I thought that that was what we left behind when we, adopted the Bill of Rights when we defended, and I know that's a much more complex history. Um, I don't want to simplify it, but at least in the last few decades, we've moved away from uh, government censorship of books. We've moved away from the idea that the government should tell us what to think and what to think about, but we're now seeing this authoritarian impulse to impose that on our young people and to actually deny their own agency and First Amendment rights to read and access ideas. Yes, yes. And and so to kind of more contextualize this idea of authoritarianism Mm -hmm. and the ways in which those who are pro-democracy can help, you know, Deborah, I am frequently approached by higher education administrators, faculty staff, some authors, and some of my um, academic library colleagues from around the country, you know, and they're eager to assist and help to amplify support uh, for the work that you and your office do, but also for pre-K to 12 teachers and school librarians. Mm -hmm. Yet they don't know, you know, exactly how to or who to contact And so how can these colleagues really assist in supporting the freedom to read? Well, the first uh, and most important thing to do is to be aware of what's going on in your own community. Um, As I mentioned before, this is a battle taking place at school boards and library boards. So be aware of what's happening at your local school board, be aware of what's happening at your local library board, start attending meetings. Now that so many meetings are being held via Zoom, it's not all that onerous to, you know, jump online and be aware of what's going on. Make sure that you're supporting friends groups, make sure that you're supporting your colleagues in public schools and and in uh, and in public libraries who often can feel very alone when a challenge arises in the community. Um, So, 
you know, individual outreach is important to make sure you yes. vote in, in elections because uh, we're aware of one library board that was taken over, literally taken over by those who want to close the library um, with only 8% of the community voting in the election. You know, wow. We, so one of the things we talk about frequently right now is emphasizing the importance of acting locally, being aware of what's going on locally, participating in local elections, and being willing to speak up when a controversy arises in your community. And then finally, supporting colleagues who are experiencing the challenge. We find that uh, at the state level, with state legislation and things, that um, our state chapters can be very are very effective in working with legislators um, and find getting in touch with often there's a legislative committee at the state level and you can get in touch with that legislative committee and they're always looking for volunteers to help develop testimony to reach out to legislators to simply write a letter to legislatures to oppose adverse legislation that would impair access to books and materials in public schools and libraries. And I can't go into full detail with that, but uh, that's often most effective. Uh, public advocacy. Um, if you are able to write a letter to the editor, if you're able to write an article for your local newspaper, even show up at other government meetings, city councils, yes. county commissioners, because sometimes this is taking place at a county level and county commissioners often appoint library boards um, for public libraries, especially in uh, rural areas. And so having a voice at those meetings is important as well. Um, we would also argue that it's important to be in touch with national coalition groups. Be aware, you know, if there is, there, there's a number of chapters of this, uh, uh, a group called Red Wine and Blue, mm, organizing yes. groups of um, mothers to resist censorship in their communities. Um, and you can support that effort as well. We are also mobilizing at our end, and we are hoping to uh, amplify training around the law, uh, around challenges about having good policy in place. We've been doing this for years. Um, Excellent. We think yes. that um, we need to not both increase the frequency of the trainings, but also reach out to new audiences, do these trainings for trustees, do these training for board members, do trainings for the public so that they're aware of uh, the legal boundaries around censorship. Because often when we hear somebody frame a work like Fun Home as legally obscene, they really don't have an understanding of the law. And maybe that kind of education can take place as well. But also right. support our colleague. You know, we, we have allies in this fight. So the National Coalition Against Censorship, PEN America. Uh, PEN America has taken on as their particular fight the, the legislation I described that was banning uh, diversity training and consideration of any uh, or discussion of any ideas around racism or sexism uh, in primarily K through 12 classrooms, but also at the university level. Um, we haven't yet observed 
legislation that might reach into the university library yet, but we're mm-hmm. very concerned that that's the next thing to come, that a ban yes. on the 1619 project in K through 12 schools would be extended to public universities. So uh, we're monitoring yes. that as well. So uh, public policy and advocacy at ALA is monitoring this um, work and, and reaching out to advocates. And so uh, keeping an eye on the news that comes out. OIF does send out a weekly newsletter. Unfortunately, it's just filled these days, uh, sometimes yes. 30 or 40 stories about attempts to censor at the local level. But that could be a way of becoming aware of a situation in your state or in your region that you might be able to assist with or take action on. But also, uh, it's our way of reaching out and letting folks know that there might be some work you can do. We're actually uh, excited to learn that um, there is a possibility of a lawsuit in um, a community in Missouri that removes okay. both Bluest Eye and Beloved without following their policies or procedures. Um, and, and so that's where the Freedom to Read Foundation comes in. The Freedom to Read Foundation is working with the local ACLU in that case to uh, support their effort to restore the books to the shelves through uh, a lawsuit. And we'll see how that plays out. Um, we're, it, it's possible that the school district will make a decision that will prevent the lawsuit from going forward by returning the books, but we're not hopeful about that. So. Got it. Yeah, thank you. And and I will, uh, myself, along with the choice team, we'll make sure to uh, provide links to our listeners for all of the wonderful organizations that you just listed, including the Freedom to Read Foundation, um, so that people can get a sense of who is working um, in partnership with OIF and ALA Public mm-hmm. Policy and Advocacy and the Association um, et cetera, to move and advance a coalition effort around this. Because I think sometimes if things are not always on display in social media, it doesn't always necessarily look like action is happening. And so we are going to do our best to continue to amplify the great work that you and your team are doing and mm-hmm. others across the country to address these topics. So thank you for providing that really wonderful list of resources. And you read my mind, Deborah. Um, mm-hmm. over <laughs> the internet because I was going to ask you about the red, white, and blue group uh, because I just saw something about them. I think it was in the Washington Post or some other national yeah, publication absolutely. that just covered them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and you know, the other thing I would recommend at this point is uh, reaching out to organizations that represent marginalized youth in particular. Uh, yes. And, um the Gay Straight Alliance in your community, organizations that support African-American youth, because what is the message that's being given here? You know, that you don't matter, that you don't belong in our classrooms and libraries or that your experiences shouldn't be reflected there. And so we are actually working with uh, GLSEN in particular, uh, the Trevor Project and others to uh, share our information about the book challenges we're seeing and to support their efforts to support, uh, to get, to do outreach and, and challenge uh, the, these uh, book censorship efforts. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you what, how special it is um, for me and how heartening to hear youth show up at school board meetings to challenge the adults 
and yes. speak out against censorship <laughs> um, and to share, you know, to to be open enough to sharing how books like Gender Queer or um, Stamped uh, fed their minds and fed their identities and, and you know, uh, were important to them moving forward, important to their education, important to their selfhood. And and actually, in some cases, were, was actually life saving for them. And the bravery of these students to step forward and to reveal themselves in public and and to fight for their freedoms is and yes. their fellow students' freedoms is just, you know, remarkable and wonderful to see. It absolutely is. It uh it gives me hope because you know, of course, I'm I'm engaged in this work, you know, from afar. I'm not in the mm-hmm. trenches in the same way that you and your team um, is Deborah. Nonetheless, there are days where I'm like, this is intense. This is a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It makes me uh, disappointed and upset and stressed, you know, and all of those, all of those kind of just tough emotions to negotiate as we're also negotiating the ongoing trajectory of the pandemic. And so my last question to you is, you know, what gives you hope? Um, and really, you're you're seeing it all manifest itself um, in all types of difficult ways. But what gives you hope that the hard work of the Office of Intellectual Freedom is not in vain? Well, certainly, as I mentioned, just mentioned, uh, seeing students step up, uh, having young people uh, acknowledge and support the freedom to read, and the efforts of library professionals all, all across the entire library ecosystem step forward to defend the freedom to read. It tells me that that idea is not dead and and that, you know, defending intellectual freedom is an important part of the work we do. And, and it's actually an important part of social justice. If we don't have the, the defend this freedom, you know, we're seeing whose voices are being silenced and marginalized. Yes. And we need to be able to maintain uh, that uh, role for libraries to, uh, you know, to amplify those voices and and make sure that they have a place to be in the community. But, uh, you know, I I just, you know, I I just believe that every time I read an article where there was a challenge to a book um, and there was a panicked removal of that book, but then two weeks later, the school board votes to return the book to the shelf. Um, mm-hmm. It gives me hope that we can once again have uh, we, we won't be reacting in a moral panic, but being thoughtful and considerate about this work that we do uh, with educating young people and making works available to them and realize that we um, it's that it's important to their education to make, a, you know, this diversity of ideas available to them, even difficult and hard ideas that uh, will only make them better adults, better human beings, prepare them better for education. You know, so I, it's a glimmer of hope, but I see it and I'm gratified when it happens. And hopefully working in coalition, we can bring that about for everyone. Absolutely. And, you know, we are also hopeful that that glimmer continues to brighten. Mm -hmm. And so I want to thank you so much for your leadership and thanks to the team um, at the Office of Intellectual Freedom. And thank you so much for your time today. This was a wonderful conversation. Again, thank you for uh, giving me time to talk, Alexa. I really appreciate it. Uh, I really appreciate the invitation. And 
anytime. If there's a topic we can talk, I'd be happy to join you. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you. Thank you for listening to our Toward Inclusive Excellence Spring Semester Podcast with Deborah Caldwell-Stone, Director of the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom and Executive Director of the Freedom to Read Foundation. I encourage you to sign up for reminders of new Toward Inclusive Excellent content releases and to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time and support. Be well.